caught offside with Andrew Gundling and J.J. Devaney. Oh, yes. Caught offside from a basement in Westchester and an apartment in Brooklyn. Andrew Gundling and J.J. Devaney. What's up, brother? Oh, am I glad to hear your voice, Andrew. I just spent uh, an hour and a half in the presence of Brendan Rogers. So the Oxford Union, which is the debating society at Oxford University, they have, you know, interesting guests from many different spheres, comedy, politics. They've had Conan O'Brien on. They've had um, Steve Bannon on. They've had all sorts of different people from varying shades of life. And they had tremendous character. And they posted it. Obviously, it was uh, done a few months ago before the current pandemic. And... um it was terrible. It was just awful. But I was list- I was just looking for any nugget from it to take into the podcast. I got nothing. So I'm just ha- I'm just happy to hear your voice and excited about this podcast. We got a lot going on. So 90 minutes that you'll never have back. And now into 90 minutes that our listeners will never have back. Should just be glorious. We have a lot, though, that we are going to discuss. Um, we kind of like dipped our toe in the water of the Newcastle takeover situation last week. Today, we're going to dive in full cannonball. Uh, Kristen Hennage, who we've had on before to talk about Newcastle matters. He's a football writer for a long time, uh, Newcastle supporter. Uh, we're going to talk with him. This is our first foray, JJ, since we've started this new technology into having a guest on. I can't wait for everything to go wrong uh, and this podcast to probably never see the light of day. People are so loving our low-tech efforts uh, these, these past few weeks. Uh, also, some people need to start listening. I posted that it was Kaka's birthday. He turned 38 today. And a bunch of people, like two people, well, I say a bunch of people, two people who I just got angry at. It's only two people amongst thousands. But two of them go, oh, you should talk about what went wrong at Real Madrid. We did. Oh, oh. Two podcasts ago. That's sad. You know, you keep saying what a low-tech operation this is. Like, it's not exactly two tin cans, like, on a, on a line of string. Like, this is actually a pretty impressive technology, if you ask me. That, yeah, like, neither of us are in studio, and yet we're still able to record and post a podcast. I, I think you're selling the technology a little short, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, when we can have the Belarusian opera each week bringing, right. bringing us in to Belarusian football, uh, that's amazing. Uh, we've got a big mailbag. You you sent me the questions ahead of time, and there are some that I wow. really, really like. And yeah, there's, there's one other one that I, I wanted to add, but we'll get to that. Oh. Um, yeah. Uh, red cards and men of the match make their triumphant return. I love my red card, um, although some of the steam was taken away from it by Tony Cascarino. I'll explain why when we get to that. Cass um, is on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, let's start the show, JJ, now. Uh, there was Actually, before we even get into our initial topics, there were Two things that I wanted to mention straight out of the gate. The first one being props to NBCSN. Uh, over the weekends, they've been showing some EPL classics. And like it's been the kind of stuff that like I've gone through and I've seen that a game is on. And I'm like, okay, I'll fold laundry while, while I put this on as kind of background noise. And I know all the results. I remember these games like the back of my hand. And yet, like whatever I'm doing, I stop. And I'm sucked back in. And this past weekend, they had on... Uh, one of our favorite John Champion games, the Manchester United-Leicester City game, uh, with the incredible King Power roar that we used to just have a drop of the roar from when Jamie Vardy scored in Leicester City's comeback over Man United. And then I couldn't believe this, but after that was the famous Liverpool-Crystal Palace match, the, uh, the 3-3. And to my stunned amazement, so I watched the whole thing, and then I go on Twitter afterwards, and you were basically live-tweeting it from the show account. I got to say... 
I, I admire you for doing it. Uh, and if I were a Liverpool fan, that is one of those games that I, I erase the tape. I never watch again. I try to delete it from my memory. I can't believe you sat through it again. It was, and remember, Andrew, uh, that was the early days of our podcast in 2014. Yeah. And I think one of the best early podcasts we did, because a lot of them were questionable, but the best early podcast we did was when I told you about my watching, my viewing experience of that game. Do you remember? Uh, no. Well, I'll give you the quick story. I'm in a bar in Bay Ridge, which has since closed, and I'm, I'm on my own. I just go in. I'm going to order lunch, and I'm going to watch the game. I've accepted we're not winning the league because we just lost on the Sunday against Chelsea. By the way, I, you said that last week. I don't believe you. I believe that that is a, a defense mechanism that you employ. But the league no, was not decided. It no, was not it, decided. It was not decided, but it required Man City to slip up, and I didn't see a slip up. And I was right. There wasn't one. But anyway, so I'm, I'm in this bar, and I'm watching this game, and there's a friendly chap who I didn't know at the time who turned out to be our friend Tom Fitz at the end of the bar. And I'm just eating my, my chips or whatever I'm doing, and the whole game happens. And right at the end, Luis Suarez is so desolate, so absolutely devastated by what's happened. He pulls his jersey over his head and he starts crying. And Steven Gerrard comes to console him and blocks away the camera. And behind me, I hear this guy and he goes, this. all I can hear is the voice, man up, Suarez. So I hear it the first time and I'm like, just ignore, just ignore. You're a bigger person. You're, you're, you're early 30s, JJ now, mid-30s, JJ. You don't react. Then he says it again as the camera. And, 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 and by the way, NBC and, and Sky Sports or whoever was covering that, that game had the feed. They didn't talk. They cut the commentary. There was no blathering from the studio. There was no Arlo White. There was nothing. The camera just followed Gerard and Suarez and, and beamed the images as they were unfiltered. Yeah. And I hear the voice again. Man up, Suarez. And I'm like, okay, Jesus. If he says this one more time. And, and, and Suarez is still crying. And he's walking off. Gerard is guiding him. He can't see. His jersey's over his head. He is done. He's emotionally spent. And I hear it again. Man up, Suarez. And I turned around. I said, will you ever shut up, man? Will you? I said, if you've expended the energy that this guy has, the absolute emotional moment he's in right now, man up, what are you talking about? Why don't you shut up? Now, that's never wise in any bar to do anything like that. And afterwards, I did apologize to the guy. I said, I'm sorry for freaking out at you, man. I, I, this is just get all got to me. And he goes, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. But uh, yeah, that was an ugly incident. Yeah. It's funny too, going back and watching that game. I know it's a different time. Players are younger. Players aren't yet who they are now. But like, I'm watching it and you just see, you, you almost forget. You're like, oh yeah, that's right. Raheem Sterling. Oh yeah, that's right. Philip Coutinho. Suarez, Sturridgeon is like actually being a great goal. Like you look at that Liverpool team and you're, and you know, Gerard's still at the end of his prime. You're kind of like, boy, I, I do wonder if they kind of let one get away that maybe they, they were good enough to have gotten. Oh my God, they absolutely did. But then you look at the defendant, you look at Mamadou Sako, you look at Martin Skirtle and you look at Mignolet and you're thinking, how are these bozos top of the league? That's the other side to it. Yeah. But, but that game, but Andrew, that game was a stroll. For 60 minutes. Ah, come on. Let's get on with the podcast. I can't do this. I can't. It was, yeah, I'm just wondering if people want to tweet us during the week, what is 
Because I'm saying that that's the game almost more than any other for JJ that I can't believe. Like to me, that's one you delete. I, I'd like to hear from other people the teams that they support, the games that they just refuse to ever watch again. Obviously, for me, you know, any USA fan will say the Trinidad game. Like that was instant delete on your DVR. I'm trying to think from Spurs some of the Tottenham Arsenal games. The, uh, what was it? The five two when Tottenham were up two nil against Arsenal and Arsenal stormed back and scored five straight. That one was a an about, absolute delete. The battle at the bridge. Towards the end of the 15-16 season. Yep, absolute, absolute delete, no question. So I'd be curious, at CO Soccer Pod, people, tell us your team and the game that you could absolutely never watch again. Um, one other thing, too, I just want to, right out of the gate, quickly, not going to dwell on it, but I do want to thank everybody. I could not believe the reaction that I got from people from what I talked about last week about kind of the struggle is a harsh word because I love my kids and they've been so great during this, but just having multiple young children uh, during this quarantine, I talked about how it's kind of been difficult. And uh, I, I don't know, I wasn't even really expecting a ton off of it. And JJ, it's it's probably more reaction that I have personally gotten to anything that I've said since we've been doing this podcast, just people who kind of wanted to just vent. And- until you have a child, yeah. until you have a child, you do not understand. Okay. It really is the ultimate version of that. But I, there were there were clearly a lot of people that that resonated with who I think needed to just hear that they're not alone in this. And so, and by the way, you then responding to me the way all of you guys did gave me that same feeling of, okay, good. It's not just me. Like, so thank you to all of you. I can't even go through name by name, but like tons of reaction. It was really, really nice. And just everybody hang in there. We will get through it. That's all I'm going to say about it. Okay. Uh, uh, all right, here we go. Uh, along those lines in this coronavirus world that we are living in, JJ, I would say um, I- I'm scrolling through various stories yesterday thinking, okay, what are we going to kind of talk about? That's sort of like the struggle each week, even though we then find a way to like effortlessly do 60 minutes to 90 minutes. Uh, but I- like, so I'm scrolling through again and I was like, okay, th- just like as long as there's not another negative Tottenham story, then like the the podcast will be fine. And then right straight away, staring me in the face is another negative Tottenham story that Serge Aurier and Musa Sissoko have to, have been forced to apologize for training together. This on the heels of us talking, what was it last week or two weeks ago about Jose Mourinho hope, holding an open training session in in the middle of a public park. Uh, this and then that, of course, on the heels of Daniel Levy. Um, stopping uh, Tottenham, like stopping to pay certain staff members, although they have since changed their mind on that and said it was the wrong decision, but whatever your initial choice was the wrong one. Uh, it's just like, can they, it feels like this whole season has been one misstep after another. Like this is just, when is this going to end? And, and with this, with this story in particular, it's frustrating to me, not from a Tottenham standpoint, but from a human being standpoint, because you've got people right now in America, in England, Spain, Italy, wherever, you've got people of far less means in far smaller homes, in far worse circumstances who are following the rules. But like these guys, Aurier, Sissoko, like they're making crazy money still, even with whatever pay cut they do wind up taking. They're making crazy money. They live in mansions and it's, and like they're the ones who can't follow the rules. But like everybody else who's struggling to get by, like they're, we're all doing it, but you guys can't. Like that, that from a human standpoint, it drives me nuts. Yeah, it's absolutely crazy. And uh, here in Ireland, or here in Ireland, in Ireland, uh, I read a report today that uh, St. Patrick's Athletic have laid off. And they're a Premier League team in, in Ireland. They've laid off all their staff, all their playing staff, all their ground staff, everybody, just to keep the club going. And you see 
the sacrifices they've made, and all you're asking for these two bozos is to stay in. But, Andrew, I, I, and I hate to do this, Tottenham have been so inept in terms of PR and the way they've managed, like you said, this entire season, but particularly the, the last month to six weeks, that me and you are leaving out stories about them. How did we not mention this one, which was uh, broken by Matt Law in The Telegraph just a few weeks back? Daniel Levy has given consideration to putting, to to putting Tottenham Hotspur ground staff who have not been furloughed to work at his private Hertfordshire estate during the coronavirus crisis. Tottenham insists that Chairman Levy would pay any staff he uses privately himself rather than work through their Spurs salary as the club attempt to keep employees in work. I mean... Do you know how that sounds? That sounds like Dickensian. You know, <laughs> I will take some workers from the mill and they shall plough my estate. Right. Like, like, what is this? It's incredible. Tottenham cannot get out of their own way. And um, But like, and we're still forgetting stories. I just remembered the other one when this, before this had really all begun, when it was, when coronavirus was starting to become a thing, but we weren't quite sure yet just how serious. Remember the the video that Deli Alley posted in an airport? Oh. That he had to apologize for? Like, I mean, it's what are they doing? Can somebody take control here and tell these guys to just start behaving properly? Who like who is leading this group? Media relations and PR companies in years to come will study this as an example of how not to act in a pandemic. <laughs> like it's incredible. Now, me and you have consistently said this that often in preseason, what do we see? Trips away, uh, so so mid-season trips away if you're out of the FA Cup, danger zone for players. Uh, summertime, danger zone for players. A lot of players, because of the cosseted and, and uh, quiet lives that they've led, you know, they've, they've never really been in society. They've never really learned from their mistakes, especially the modern footballer, it seems. You've often said this. I've often said this. You can't leave them to their own devices or you're just going to end up with these incidents. You're right. Now, look, I do want to say it's not entirely fair to paint every member of the team with this brush. Like I, I've, I follow all these guys, Tottenham players on Twitter and the Tottenham official account. And there's also been a lot of good stuff that they've done. I know Harry Kane and Jordan Henderson were both instrumental in all the captains coming together uh, to donate money. Um, so like, but I don't know, they, these stories about them in particular seem to be finding their way into the mainstream with a, with a frequency that is a little too great for my or I would think any Tottenham fans liking. So, and, and sadly enough, I will have one more for this podcast is said and done. One more story that doesn't exactly paint them in the most negative light. So you'll, have to, you'll have to stay tuned. We have a Tottenham fan as a co-host, and we are hemorrhaging Tottenham listeners right now. Let's move on quickly. I know. Uh, yeah, let's move on. So this is we're now getting to the moment. I think that a lot of us have, in one way or another, been expecting slash dreading uh the dutch air announced yesterday on uh, on tuesday that their league will likely not continue uh, after the government extended a ban on major events in the netherlands until september 1st now it, so it's not done uh quite yet but it's it's likely that the league will not continue and the season will just simply end as is with by the way a tie right now uh, at the top of the table in that league. Um, I saw that news and it made me start to wonder, like I, I have said throughout 
that to me, the only option is the one where the season is abandoned. The, the only option that I don't approve of is the one where the season is just suddenly abandoned. Um, I wonder if other leagues have been waiting for the first domino to fall. Like if there are other leagues that are just didn't want to be the first one to do this and have been waiting for somebody else to open the floodgates. And now potentially the Dutch league has. And I wonder if we will start to see other leagues making the same decision because they're not willing to necessarily compromise future seasons. I, I hear what you're saying, Andrew, but um, I decided I'd go onto some Dutch news websites today and find out is there any particular reason why the Eredivisie may just have to, you know, not continue. And I went to nu.nl, which is one of the leading online Dutch websites, and it's, there appears to be a key difference in Dutch law. So playing matches without an audience does not seem to be an option before the 1st of September, reads uh, this article on nu.nl. Because unlike in Germany, for example, those duels, those matches, they count as events. So it's not, you see, in Germany, it appears to be the case that um, they are looking to play without crowds and they will be able to find a legal way forward to do that. In Holland, even the gathering of players is an event. So that's a problem there straight away. And it actually makes sense. And it's something that I, I was on kicker today. And, and the Germans have, they've recalibrated their expectations too. The DFL was still fighting for an amicable, amicable solution with the media partners of the league on the planned payment of the outstanding television money to the 36 professional clubs in early May, according to Kicker Research. DAZN has not yet agreed to pay the fourth and final installment for this season. It is unlikely that the league will start again on May 9th. The Prime Minister's Armin Laschet and Marcus Soder spoke in favour of this appointment on Monday evening, thus declaring the topic a top priority. Soder, however, restricted on Tuesday that his green light was tied to an OK by the Robert Koch Institute and Federal Minister of Health Jen Spahn. The article goes on to say it's more likely to be the end of May that German football will reconvene. But it all depends on what the health minister and the health experts are saying. And the likelihood is, Andrew, that two teams, two squads, with all that entails, will still be really problematic to bring together as bodies of people. Yeah. I mean, I'm, look, it's probably a larger group of people than what we give it credit for. Like, let's say, so how many people, bare minimum, do you think it would take for a game to be played? Bare like, minimum. Right. If you talk about the teams, the staff, and whatever television personnel uh, are on hand, bare minimum, you think we're talking... I mean, if it's to be done to any oh, level, like, including five, a hundred, but including stewards, Andrew, including ground staff, including essential people, it's going to be two hundred. Okay, so then that is an event because weddings of one hundred and fifty or two hundred people are being canceled. You know, so like even though it looks like it's not because you're going to have fifty thousand seats empty, if there is still two hundred people there, that's like that is every bit the event that other events are that have been forced to be canceled. So Yeah, and, and I guess that's the main reason that the Dutch have, have moved in this way. They recognize the gathering of two teams and two staff and, and, and television crews or whatever is going to be there as an event. And so they're just, they're looking like they're going to have to can it. Yeah, and then additional news today that, uh, and by the way, I should have said before that uh, it's Ajax and Alkmaar that are right now tied on points atop the table. Ajax ahead on goal difference. So 
like uh, now I haven't seen the details as of yet as to if the tape, if, if I will actually be crowned champions because of that, or if it's going to be just a total abandonment as if the season never happened. I don't think they've uh, decided. I don't think so either. And because like I said, it's not official yet, but that precedent will be interesting as well to see what they decide in terms of how that's going to be handled. And then additional news today that UEFA's hope uh, is for domestic leagues to be completed by July 31st. And then the month of August would essentially be devoted solely to completing uh, the European competitions of the Champions League and the Europa League. Um, I'll say this on paper. That sounds nice. It also sounds very optimistic to me. Extremely optimistic, Andrew. And uh, I think if you're listening to the experts, as I know you are, because I know you listen to the Daily from the New York Times, and there was a rather, how shall we put it, somber note on Monday's Daily, if people listen to it, where they had the New York Times epidemic and pandemic expert. Um, He's been writing about pandemics for, for years and years. And... Yeah, it. I, I, I'm. I mean, again, it, it. It even ties into what we said last week in the, excuse me, the Sports Illustrated article. Um, I'm not so sure we're going to see sports in the way we think we are as soon as people are projecting or hoping for. So obviously, different countries are going to have different guidelines and different expectations. But for whatever for whatever prominence you place in a voice like Bob Costas. Uh, I mean, I've heard him say multiple times this week that at least here in the United States, it's his belief that we will not have team sports in the year 2020, which is just depressing to hear on top of all the other depressing news that is out there right now. That is just like such a kick to, to the groin as somebody who who's we make a living out of this. Like and we love sports. It's you know, it's more than just a hobby for us. It's kind of become like our, our livelihood. Um, so it's such a sad thought to think that this year is going to go by. Uh, and really, the only champion that's going to be crowned will have been a Super Bowl champion, and everything else will just sort of recede into uh, the attic of history. Um, I do like the idea. I think it is kind of a, a cool thought to have domestic leagues done and then just have this like European competition just all thrown at you all at once. I think like it'll kind of if it does work out, it could add sort of like a hyper level uh, to what is already a. a a, a pretty intense competition. So I think that will be fun to see the games just played on top of one another. I think Andrew and whatever guys sports come back, it's going to be hyper real to all of us. It's yeah. going to, it's going to hit our senses in a way that nothing has before. And, um, you know, most of the tweets I see from people now who are resigned to a long-term absence, much longer than six weeks, which we've experienced so far, seven weeks. Um, they're talking about how it's going to taste, how it's going to feel, how real it's going to be to have sports back. <clears throat> yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about. So, like, obviously, whatever these events are, when they do come back, I think it's everybody's expectation that they'll come back in empty stadiums. Uh, yes. So just like a thing we've all accepted. Um, when would you, when would like you, JJ, feel comfortable going to a sporting event again? Um, I don't know, Andrew. I would say, I mean, again, I am totally and solely listening to uh, listening to what the experts are saying, but I'm conscious of how this thing is communicable. I, I feel like January or February. I, I, I mean, it's an arbitrary time to put to put on right, things, right. but but with the way it's being projected and the I way don't even necessarily mean that you have to give me a date. I just mean like when, let's say, when, when, when we have Anthony Fauci goes on television and says 
like it's my belief that it's okay for crowds to resume attending sporting events. Would that in itself be enough for you to say, okay, I'm good now? Or would you even take your own buffer for like the next six months after that, a year yeah. after that? I have a lot of respect for, for the eminent doctor, but um, it would be a vaccine. Okay. You know, because I think... So you will not go to a sporting event until you've had a vaccine for this? Until there is one, yeah. Now, I, I, believe, I, I believe I've had COVID-19 and I still don't know, and no one can clarify for me 100% whether or not I have antibodies and I'm immune and that I am immune permanently. I don't even know that. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm scared to be around anybody uh, right now. And that's just the, the that's just the headspace I'm in. Yeah. Uh, you are not alone. And I think that you are in the majority of people in terms of not wanting to attend a, a crowded big event until there's a vaccine. I really think that that's like, I'm curious what games will look like if the go-ahead is given by governments, by sports governing bodies, whoever, for crowds to resume attending sporting events. I, I really do wonder what those crowds will look like. If we're talking half full, a quarter full, um, I don't know. It's who the hell knows? I don't know about anything. Anymore. I don't know. All, all I know is, Andrew, I'm glad I didn't drop $100 on uh, Deftones tickets for July. <laughs> Why was that a thing that... Uh... Deftones were coming to New York. They rarely play on these calls. Well, what? They weren't going to refund your tickets? I don't know. I've heard a lot of people. I'm not speaking about the Deftones or their uh, management or anything, but I've heard a lot of. That's unconscionable. Uh, I, I, I presume they would. Well, not if even if not a refund, I'm sure they would. They would reschedule their tour, and then you would have tickets to the next New York show, right? I mean, I guess I, I, I can't believe they would just take your money. Uh, if that's if that's the band that you're supporting, you know what? I don't want you listening to their music anymore. Uh, and I'll take your I'll take your advice on music there, Guster. Uh, I take that as an unbelievable compliment. Um, as we wait for Kristen Hennage, who will be joining us any second now to talk about uh, Newcastle. I guess, JJ, we should catch people up to speed if anybody didn't listen to that last week. It looks like Newcastle is now in the final phases um, of a takeover, which has kind of been headed up by Amanda Staveley, who has been at the forefront of this really for a number of years now, since Mike Ashley first put the team up for sale. Um, she is sort of acting almost as like a front woman for a Saudi Arabian consortium, um, which is essentially the, the face of which is the crown prince. Right. It's the and, and the consortium's funds are the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia. This is a, a state run, state sanctioned project. Yes. Uh, and it looks now like we're heading into the, the final phases here where it seems like what has been conjecture over the better part of the last two and a half years or so, uh, it looks like this is actually now going to happen. Um, but it's not without some protest from fairly prominent organizations. Uh, Amnesty International uh, has protested this and believes that it should not go through because of Saudi Arabian human rights violations. Uh, and then be in sport. Uh, the television network has protested this and they've made it clear in their protests that it's not necessarily because of the reasons that Amnesty International are protesting. I think they want to make sh they want to make clear that like they're not jumping onto a cause that is not necessarily their own. No, uh, be because because it's it's an issue. I mean, again, it's a it's an issue of that region being played out now in, in the media at the moment um, in, in England, which is incredible. Yeah, because BN Sport is essentially saying that Saudi Arabia has been pirating their EPL feeds uh, to play in that country when, in fact, BN Sport has the rights and Saudi Arabia has been giving it to a, a different TV organization. Um, 
and be in sport as contending that it's doing so illegally. Also, Abu Dhabi and the potential owners of Newcastle United, the Saudi, Saudi Arabians, are politically tied in that region. And they would not be on good terms with the Qatari-owned BN Sports. There it's you go. A, it's a mess. I'll tell you who I'm worried about. Andy Gray and Richard Keyes. I don't want them getting tied up. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Let's go now to Kristen Hennage uh, back on the show. He's been on with us before, football writer, um, Newcastle supporter. And he's here to shed a little bit more light on what is going on exactly with this club right now. Kristen, what's up? How are you? I'm not bad, thanks. How are you? We're hanging in. How is this all been for you? Are you healthy? Are you generally of sound mind? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, um, I think a a pandemic is a wonderful time to bone up on Middle Eastern politics and and how that plays out in the, the realm of professional football so it's it's i've had all the time in the world to learn about this which has been wonderful yeah now Kristen, you haven't yet gone as far as to have the kingdom of saudi arabia flag put onto your avatar on on twitter <laughs> like other newcastle united fans I, i'm I, i'm curious it's probably a good starting point you i did not i knew you were from the northeast i did not realize that you were a geordie uh yeah. i didn't realize you were a newcastle united fan and probably when you were working in england for the Guardian and all those publications, it was good not for people to know that. But as we sit here right now, how conflicted are you? How how is the Newcastle United fan and Kristen Hennage feeling? Oh, I think more conflicted than ever. Um, it's impossible not to be because, as I look at this through the lens of a supporter, I've wanted Mike Ashley gone from the football club for years. But the consequence of that happening is this replacement that just doesn't sit well with me. It, it can't. I can't be as aware of the situation in the Middle East, read what I've read about the Saudi Arabian regime, and then say, yeah, this is this is completely fine. It's it's not for me to be concerned about. I think I, I just, I couldn't wrestle that with my own principles and, and what I feel like I stand for as a person. Um, Kristen, sorry, Andrew, just to cut across you, just to follow up on that, is there, because I don't want to paint all Newcastle fans with the same brush and Twitter is not <clears> reflective <throat> of broader of broader society all the time, at least, I hope not. Um, do you know, is there a, a groundswell or or a, 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 coag- a coming together of opposition amongst Newcastle fans to this? I think it's, it's a, a sliding scale, I think is perhaps a good way to put it. Because you're right, football fans as, as a group are not this homogenous blob that have one identity and one idea. In the same way, I think you could say that about the media, that the people covering this do not have the same opinion about the entire situation. It's degrees of grey. And I think for the majority, yeah, this is something that doesn't sit well with them. But I also think there's a slightly nihilistic tone to it in terms of, well, we couldn't do anything when Mike Ashley owned this club. We couldn't get him out. We can't really control a great deal of what's about to happen anyway. So, yeah, we could go and protest. We could do whatever you feel is is a valid response to, to this situation. But would it change anything? Would it all just be a sort of facade, a show of us of us trying to to reflect something that maybe we don't actually even feel that passionate about as a supporter base? Yeah, I'm kind of curious uh, for a Newcastle supporter is for whatever happiness that you and supporters are feeling, is that based around the idea of, oh my God, we're about to become the next Manchester City. It's like we've won the lottery or is it just more out of this pure hatred that the supporters and the fan base have developed towards this current owner. You know what? I, I don't even think it's as grandiose as wanting to be the next Man City. I think the the people who are gung-ho behind this are gung-ho behind it because 
For over a decade, they've wanted to feel like their football club consistently looks for the best option and not what's the mediocre option. Like It's a lot of striving towards the middle at best. And I think for that end, it's very difficult because the, there are political elements to this, not just in the Middle East, but I think back at home as well in terms of when I look at this through the lens of a supporter and talk to people back home and things, I, I don't agree with this, to be very clear. I'm not a fan of it. It doesn't sit right with me. I also look at people back home who have been told that this group will come in, they will potentially invest heavily in the football club, get them up the up the league to an ambitious point where I think we last saw them with Sir Bobby Robson, the late Sir Bobby Robson. And then also they'll invest in the local economy, they'll invest in the city, which, to be honest, the current British government haven't done to a great deal for a long time. So there are absolutely socioeconomic factors tied to this that make it so intoxicating for supporters to the point where yet a lot of them don't want to stand up and say this is a disgrace. This is. I think we all agree the point that Amnesty or the letter rather that Amnesty put out, that that's very much hitting the nail on the head. It's a concern. But I think where those people come from who, who are not as passionate about that aspect of it are this football club, Newcastle, is not the first horse through the gate here. There's been a number of them. Now, for me personally, that doesn't matter. My principles don't change based on what everyone else does. It's what I do and how I reflect on it. So I think that's what makes it so complicated is that it's a lot of people looking to give this ball of responsibility to one person, be it supporters or whoever. I haven't seen a ton of criticism for Mike Ashley personally, and he's the one that signed off on this. And he's the one that signed off on it having said, I'll sell it to the right person in inverted commas. Now, to me, I don't know if that's the right person he's selling to. It depends what his criteria for that is. Uh, I wanted to ask you, Kristen, you mentioned the Amnesty International, the letter from them. Uh, there was that protest right before you came on. JJ and I were talking a little bit about being sport uh, and their protest of this happening as well. Is there are, are we essentially at a point now where this is happening no matter what? Or is there any concern for those who are a part of this deal that Amnesty International be in sport, that these protests could actually hold this thing up from happening? Yeah, you don't want to be the guy who says it's definitely going to happen, then it falls on its backside. Um <laughs> The thing is, with the with the being aspect, from what I read as someone that is not a lawyer but has watched a lot of people's court, is for this to be an issue, it would have to have involved a conviction, which I don't believe the Saudi Arabian PIF, whoever, has had as yet. The French court said, yet yeah, we can agree that the, the satellites were being used, but after that we can't really sign off on anything else. If there'd been a conviction, that would be a bit different, I think. Um, and that's sort of the very fine line. And I think you even saw that in the English press sort of just tonight as everything was dropping for tomorrow, that the Premier League have sort of intimated through briefing journalists and such that they're a little bit queasy about this potential deal, but they also can't necessarily block it because it could sprout up a massive legal battle where the Saudi Arabians or Mike Ashley says, you know what, this isn't fair. Now, that in itself is a giant can of worms sitting on the edge of the, the kitchen counter there. But that is another situation that's sort of impacting this and why I think if I was to put my own sort of reputation, I think it will go through personally. Kristen, um, before we look forward to what the new Newcastle, super Newcastle will look like, um, can we reflect? They've a bit always of... been super Newcastle. Uh, well, <laughs> now that you're in Brooklyn, you feel safe to say that there's no, there's, there's not too many Sunderland fans around here or actually maybe there is. Um, because of the recent documentary. But before we look at that, can we reflect a little bit on Mike Ashley's ownership? Because I was reading a piece today 
And it, it kind of took me aback. He's been at the club 13 years now. Um, how would you characterize those 13 years? If I think there's a piece in The Athletic that really went in depth on this. And yet at the same time, it produced this little microcosm that's perfect, which is if it took up too much of Mike's time and he felt like it wasn't going to make him money, he wasn't interested in the football club. And that sort of dereliction, that absent landlord, is a pretty decent microcosm for what he is. Because yet he's bought Joe Linton. He spent a lot the year they went down uh in 2015-2016 but that feast has always come after a pretty significant famine with him it's always been a counterbalance to what he hadn't done the previous season so I think for, for him it's someone that made a very bold decision didn't negotiate with Sir John Hall when it came to buying the club and then really regretted it from the moment it started ad infinitum as, as long as he was at the club and, and it's yeah, he just never was meant to own a football club. I think it's as simple as that. Yeah, he's a he's a fascinating figure to me in this, Mike Ashley, because he is a supporter of the club. What happens to him now? Can he no longer show his face in that stadium? Um, you know, it's funny the the idea of him as a supporter. I've heard so many different stories about he's a Tottenham fan, he's a Chelsea fan, he's a Newcastle. I I don't even know if he likes football that much personally. It's not something I've ever discussed with him for obvious reasons. But I just think he will want rid of this. How his sports shops in the city centre are impacted, there's one on Northumberland Street, which is the main street. Um, that will be, I guess, an interesting case study to just how much disdain there was for him because there was talk of boycotts for the shops and protesting the shops and all that kind of stuff, which I think happened to varying degrees. But the lasting impact, that will probably give you a greater metric on, on how much disdain has really built for him over these years. Uh, Kristen, you may not be able to answer this, but it's it's a theory I've been thinking about. Surely his motivation to sell the club right now is exactly, as you said, the retail, the high street shops have been hit. Um, he does not know <clears throat> when this will end. And getting rid of Newcastle now is at a prime time for him. Oh, absolutely. I, I When this story of Stavely came back again, um, I have to be honest, I had no inside knowledge, but I was very sceptical and said as much. said, I don't think this is going to happen. I said, the only way I think it'll happen is if they tumble down the divisions or they lose significant value. Mm. Now, the coronavirus is something that not a lot of people could have predicted to the, the scale that it is now, but it's absolutely impacted the, the high street. And you can see that in the way that he's desperately tried to keep those stores open because they're deemed essential in his eyes because they sell exercise equipment. Now, <laughs> th- there's... There's a shade of that to me that really gives you a window into just how greedy he is, I think, as a businessman, how sort of mindlessly driven he is towards profit. Hmm. But at the same time, it also shows you he's a little bit concerned about the situation that he's in, the fact that a lot of his businesses are struggling because he is very rooted in the high street. And he said that before that, you know, I can't go and compete because my money is like wallpaper. It's, it's not liquid cash that I could just throw at players. So if that's true, if I take him on face value for that, then he's definitely struggling at the minute. And a £300 cash injection right now, no questions asked, not over stagnated payments, just as he sits there right now and then, that's better than he's going to get. I think even if you know you do it in 12, 18 months, I think a lot of people were put off by that price, to be very honest with you. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to ask you about that. None of us sitting here are economists, but you know the Premier League is the richest league in the world. Newcastle, for mm-hmm. whatever struggles they've gone through in this current generation, they are still in their own way a brand. 
I mean, they are a, a, a renowned brand around the world that people are familiar with. Um, I saw that price and I thought, that's it? That, I, I'm wondering okay. if, if Newcastle fans felt the same way. Um, no, I don't. If I'm honest, I don't think they did. And I think the, your, your rationale for how you came to that conclusion is absolutely fair. I think what they would say is, go look at our training ground. It looks a lot like a social club, um, a, a dive bar, if you will, for for our American friends. It, the stadium needs upgrading. the The infrastructure support has not been there. This this club has not really been run at a Premier League level. You've seen the likes of Huddersfield, Bournemouth, Southampton, Swansea, all get ahead of them in terms of infrastructure and what surrounds the actual on field action at a pretty concerning rate. And Lee Charnley, the, the managing director who will potentially leave if this goes through, said that once no player had turned Newcastle down because they didn't like the look of the training ground. And that, again, it's sort of a little, that's not really the point, Lee. That, the point is, is that you're supposed to give these guys a, the best platform to succeed. And so the, the sort of spectre, if you will, that is Mike Ashley's legacy and why this price was so difficult to reach is that you've probably seen cryo chambers. You may have even seen it on the Sunderland Till I Die documentary. Newcastle used paddling pools full of ice for a long time. Quite literally, like a very sort of amateur soccer club clubhouse type scenario. And you thought, this is a Premier League football team. That's a French international stood in that paddling pool. <laughs> it, it, it's a very surreal Dickensian, almost best of times, worst of times when they finish fifth. And that's the infrastructure that's supporting that team. Let's be fair, though. Sunderland didn't even use their cryo chamber. It was, uh, Mar- <laughs> it was what's his name? Martin Bain, the chief executive. A final one for me, uh, Kristen, on, on, on just on, on Newcastle right now, because we're obviously waiting to see what happens. And, and you've put your head in the block and said this will, this will go ahead. The focus on like the Premier League's responsibility. Um, Steve Cockburn is a Newcastle fan and he's also the Amnesty International Head of Economic and Social Justice. And he had a very interesting thread today. And, and one of the tweets that he, he put out was, was this, and it kind of pushes back on, on the Premier League's responsibility. But the lack of Premier League uh, human rights policy, its fit and proper person test is weak. And the fact that mm-hmm. TV disputes are more likely to be a barrier says a lot. The Premier League could do a lot worse than banning sovereign wealth funds from owning football clubs. Surely this this is something that the Premier League should adopt and, and, and could solve a lot of problems. Absolutely. And and to be fair, I can almost hear fans in the Football League screaming the same thing because the EFL test is a similar tissue paper type scenario where th- there's been instances where you haven't shown proof of funds before go- going ahead with these things. Essentially, from as I understand it, the Premier League wants just a a business plan, essentially. How are you going to spend this money? How are you going to support this team? It's not really a deep dive in the character of the person. It's very superficial in that regard. And Mm. that is a major problem. The difficulty you have now, as I alluded to before, is that you have let people in potentially that have breached any of the rules that you may look to implement. And so then how do you back end that and, and rectify it because they'll say, well, you allow this person or you allow, and it's, that's the trouble that you've got right now, I think. And that's where, again, I think the Premier League has sort of in this quest to be the greatest league in the world in inverted commas, Mm. it's just let itself get run away with its own energy and its own fuel to the point where it's very much accepting of money. It's not too concerned with who is attached to it. Uh, Kristen, last one from me, JJ referenced before uh, the new Newcastle, Already, I mean, this deal is not official yet, and already we've seen names thrown around of who could be replacing Steve Bruce while he is still currently the manager. Is 
is Mauricio Pochettino right now kind of considered to be the supporter's choice? What a question. I th- I mean, yeah. If you'd asked me that in January 1st, I would have questioned <laughs> what had happened in the interim. Um, I think any of the four that, that had been reported as interested, they would take, to be honest. I think they were very much in love with Rafa Benitez and what he offered. If he came back, there would be a lovely sentiment to attach to that. I believe Allegri has been mentioned, Pochettino. This is where it's so easy to run away with the ambition of it and forget everything that is surrounding it. And it, I think that's the frustration for, for fans, which whether you think it's justified or not is your decision, is they can't really enjoy it because they can hear the sort of, but this isn't right, this isn't right. Uh-huh. And it's it's that is a fair way to look at it. Pochettino would, would be amazing, I think, in terms of um, revitalising the first team. But yeah, I... I don't think it's harsh to suggest that Steve Bruce will not see out 2020. Kristen, quickly before you go, can you give Andrew, who is just, I mean, I know he's got two kids and he's a job producing from home, the biggest sports show in New York City. But, you know, he doesn't really have that much going on. Give him a reason to get stuck into Sunderland till I die. Uh, purely for the Josh Madger and Will Grigg situation. <laughs> that, that alone. Yes. Will, yeah. That... That doesn't matter what you think of anything else. Absolutely right. S- sell your star striker for 1.5 million and then spend three times that on Will Grigg. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, majestic. majestic. And, and, and spend months telling every fan that will listen that it was the manager's choice when he's on the documentary saying, don't pay a penny more than what you bid just now. Do oh. not pay a penny more. Hey, look, you can't put a price on Will Grigg's theme song, all right? <laughs> you can it's three million rising to four exactly uh well good stuff hey Kristen, with uh on the on the last thing on the topic of newcastle's potential manager don't ask deandre yedlin for his opinion because i saw he was on espn fc i think it was yesterday or two days ago and he was it was like a rapid fire question and answer segment and they asked him who's the best manager he's ever played for and his answer was jürgen klinsman and I wonder how, how the Rafa Benitez supporters out there would feel to know that uh, DeAndre Yedlin prefers Klinsman to Benitez. Horses for courses. We all have our prefer- preferences, haven't we? I'll tell you, I, I'm going to pick any manager that gives me, what was it, half an hour in uh, World, Cup's, uh, World Cup quarterfinal? I'm going to take that. Yeah, definitely. Yes, there you go. That was his big moment. Well, hey, Kristen, we're glad that you're safe. Uh, good to see you. Good to talk to you. I'm sure once this all becomes official, if it does, if that is in fact the case and Newcastle news continues to, uh, to roll out, I'm sure we'll speak again soon. Take care, man. Likewise. Thanks guys. Cheers, Kristen. What a gentleman. Yeah. Wow. I feel bad too. Cause he's, he's only just moved to Brooklyn, right? Yeah. And so like, you know, when you, when you move to New York city, like, you probably have some idea of where it is you're going, that this is, you know, for whatever for whatever truth you believe to be about New York City, it's an amazing place, and the there's very there's, the world. there's very few places in the world that are quite like it. And he's come here at just this oh, this horrible time where you're you're literally not allowed to leave your apartment. Like it's just I can't think of like a worst first impression. Meanwhile, he's probably paying just like a huge rent to be able to do nothing. It's just like oh, six weeks weird ago. time in this city's history. Six weeks ago, I was planning to take Kristen uh, to my social club, uh, my, my, my soccer club, social club that's been there since like 1908. We're going to have a few beers. We're going to talk soccer. Not happening. Forget about it. It's all over. Oh, that's God. There, you just have to keep telling yourself there will be better days ahead. There will be better days ahead. It will not always be like this. No, nobody knows when, but man, oh man. Uh, that was fascinating though. This, this mental, I, like, 
I don't want to sit here and judge Newcastle fans who are happy in this moment because it's very easy for me to to say that from this position. But like they they have to con- they're lifelong fans. Like they're not going to suddenly stop supporting this club. What did I say on this podcast just a few, we- a few weeks ago when we talked about Liverpool? That a, a supporter should not define himself or herself based on that club's ownership. So like I I know it, it smells bad. I'm sure there's elements of it that they that they hate. But what are they what are they going to do? Just stop supporting this team that they've devoted emotion and money and time. And- uh, Andrew, 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 Andrew. Nobody is asking them to do that. What people are asking them to do is to not abuse journalists who are reporting the truth, like they've been doing. You can just look at Miguel Delaney's timeline. Ridiculous. Um, we're asking them to think. If you purport to love this club so much, then you understand that this club is a vital part of your community and you want it to do well, then you should care. You should care about who is the guardian of that club, what their morals and ethics are, and what are they up to. And you talk about this, um, you know, me and you talk about bad ownership. We've seen it in American sports. Poor, poor ownership, right? And it might be someone who is the head of a, a chemical company. Or it might be the head of someone who's a hedge fund owner. And we can go into the morality of of those two professions and corporate entities and where they are. But, you know, there are degrees of the game. This is a autocratic. I know. Like, like for example, you can't can't sit there and act like this is not a tough that, that this is not a tough it's not it's not it's not tough it's not it, it's a tough situation andrew but it's not tough to ha- to ask people and to expect people to be thoughtful about it that's not tough well, you and of, of course you're right about that i would never i would never dispute that but i just sit here and think like you know as as a kid who grew up in philadelphia who has just devoted my life to supporting the philadelphia eagles i travel around the country watching them play like it, it's honestly people who know three things about me know that like I, I work for ESPN. I have a kid, I have two kids and I'm an Eagles fan. Like if they were sold suddenly to a a regime like this, like I couldn't stop rooting for them. It's just, it's too much a part of who I am. Like it's not why I got into sports in the first place. It's, it's a fun part of my life. I I just don't know. I feel bad for Newcastle fans that know deep down inside, this is not right, but they love soccer and they love their club and they love these players and, and they look forward to Saturdays and Sundays. I, I I feel bad for them that they're kind of like now thrust into having to make this decision. Yeah, it's weird though when you see established clubs like Manchester United and the protest over the Glazer ownership. And that and those protests were ongoing, including the formation of a breakaway football club during the good times, before things went bad, before Fergie left. Uh, and you compare that to the way Manchester City fans act about their their ownership, and now the way Newcastle fans are are acting about their prospective ownership. I don't know. Like, look, Amanda Staveley. I learned this from uh, from Ken Early's podcast the other day. Amanda Staveley was was the head or the the front person of the of a group from the Middle East that tried to buy Liverpool in two thousand and six. I remember it. And that was in the middle of the Gillette and Hicks disaster. Right. I read about that. And let me tell you that 20-something-year-old JJ at the time was all over the idea of money coming through. Because guess what? A lot of it's ignorance. I didn't know enough about these regimes or about these countries. But now that now that I do, I can't turn away. Anyway. No, you can't turn away. It's just hard. It's a tough, 
it's a tough situation and I'm a thoughtful person. All right. And I like to try to see things from all points of view. Uh, mailbag before now, before we even get to the mailbag, um, there was one question you sent me the questions beforehand, but there was one that was not in there that I actually wanted to mention. Cause I thought it was interesting. I don't know okay. who it was that, that sent this to us. I saw it on Twitter. I don't know if this, this may have even originally come from the men in blazers, Twitter account. Ugh. Uh, <laughs> don't be like that. Um, <laughs> But they, the the last dance, the Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls documentary premiered over the weekend, and it was yeah. it was phenomenal. And somebody posed the question because the second episode focused a lot on Scottie Pippen. Who is the soccer Scottie Pippen? And I think I thought of an answer that that I feel, and I already know I'm going to get crushed for this. But I think I I have a thought on who I would say. Okay, go ahead, Andres Iniesta. Um, that was underappreciated, undervalued, and under. Well, no, no, no. No one is saying that he was underappreciated. I, I thought I I approached the question more. He was underappreciated by the hierarchy and Jerry Krause of of. But I, no, no, no. I approached that question not from like, boy, you, this is a Captain Literal Man moment for you if I've ever seen one. It's not about how much money the guy was making. I approached it from who was just like the ultimate superstar sidekick, and I feel like forever. Now he may Iniesta may be truly beloved, but it's always going to be defined as Leo Messi's generation at Barcelona. Right, but I, I think Xavi Hernandez would come into that even more than, that's than fair. Iniesta. Throw yeah. his name in there too. But I'm just saying, like I was it's thinking along to be Messi's Messi's team. I was, yeah, I was thinking Iniesta's an all time great. Xavi's an all time great in, in their own right. Like Pep, Pippen was named one of the top fifty NBA players of all time, a superstar. But it's always Jordan's era. I I always think about um, everyone. I know there was the Shearer and Sutton, the SAS, but Shearer dominated that conversation. I all I, I always thought that Sutton, you know, he was kind of the lesser of of the two leading lights for Blackburn that year. I mean, there's other other examples. I think of Niall Quinn and Kevin Phillips at Sunderland. Like <laughs> Quinn was the setup guy for a lot of Phillips Phillips's goals when he broke records at the Stadium of Light. I was thinking along those lines, but those are strike partnerships. I also think. Rio Ferdinand, we talked so much about how Rio Ferdinand was this Rolls-Royce centre-back. Nemanja Vidic was the guy who was no, cleaning I mean, up and Vidic, doing that. Vidic won a player of the year. I don't think yeah. anybody viewed him as, as anyone's sidekick. Yeah, I guess maybe I'm, I'm struggling to really think of, of people who were as, I don't know, undervalued by their clubs or, you know, in, in terms of Scottie Pippen. I really enjoyed that documentary, by the way. Uh, yeah, I love that we're all like, we're only two in. If they had released all ten parts on Sunday night, I would have stayed up till four a.m. I was I was that in on it. I stayed up till two a.m. reading uh, David Roth's uh, pieces for Vulture, which analyzed both episodes straight afterwards. I was so into it, and you know me—I'm not a big basketball guy. Axio Soccer Pod, caught offside pod at gmail.com. caught offside ESPN on the Instagram. Follow us on all those sites, and then send us your questions. Please keep them short. Um, listeners were looking for us to talk last week about uh, Grant Wall's firing from sport from Sports Illustrated, and I thought maybe Andrew, you've seen the broad span of his career um, at Sports Illustrated. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what he meant for, yeah. soccer, for soccer in the U.S. Well, I actually I almost feel bad that we haven't brought this up yet. I mean, he came in studio with us for like an hour and a half. Uh, he texted me today. Oh, did he really? Yeah. Uh, so, look, I don't think. I'm overstating it to say that he's he's probably the the premier soccer journalist in this country and has been for some time. Um, you know, we're obviously fans of his. 
the way this all played out was was ugly, and it has been for some time since the Maven Corporation came in and, and took over operations at Sports Illustrated. Uh, you know, the more you read about it, just just the worse it feels in terms of how that place is being run. And I feel a little bit uncomfortable saying that because I'm not there and, and I can't tell you what day-to-day operations are like. And I, and I only am really hearing one side of it. Um, but it just doesn't, it doesn't sound like a great place to be right now. I was reading something from Ben Strauss of the Washington Post, who right before Grant Wall got fired, uh, was, had written an article about the dysfunction that was going on at that place. And essentially, you know, employees were being paid late. And so Ben Strauss reached out to, I forget the, na- the man's name, James Heckman, is it, who's heading up Maven, uh, and basically said that there's concerns from your people. And he said, oh, that's silly. We're, we're a $150 million operation. Things are great. And then a few days later, they commenced their, their pay cuts uh, for employees and started releasing employees from their contracts. So like, it just doesn't sound like morale is, is high over there. And I, with respect specifically to Grant Wall, ultimately, how I feel about it is, I feel bad about what happened to him, that his name was dragged through the mud by this company, because I do believe he's, from my dealings with him, he's a good guy and he's a tremendous reporter. Um, ultimately, he'll be fine. Like, he's so entrenched in the soccer community and in the soccer world that if that place was so dysfunctional to be, this is going to be a blessing in disguise for him because he could work almost anywhere he wants. Yeah, I think so. And it appeared from his uh, social media that this was heading in a in a bad direction and he was unhappy with with the ownership at Sports Illustrated. I just think that Sports Illustrated is such an iconic brand and such a great like I've one delivered every, you know, every month and they're just I just love reading them and I would hate I hate the thought that they've lost such such a good voice for US soccer in their publication and I don't think he's replaceable because of his contacts and breadth of knowledge. Um Here's an interesting one, Andrew. Another one for you. I was out at the weekend. This is me. And I was biking. Uh, Wait, you in- sent your own mail to the mailbag segment. Fact. No, no, no. No, no, no. No, oh. no, no. How dare you cut across me? Um, so I was out cycling and I noticed a mural of George Best on the wall of a cafe restaurant in Brooklyn Heights with a quote underneath it. I spent a lot of money on booze, birds and fast cars. The rest I just squandered. And it had the, you know, it had George Best's date of birth, et cetera. And it was a strange thing to see randomly in Brooklyn Heights. Um, I posted the picture of it and I got this response from Watoza. Is there anything in America that even comes remotely close to his story? And I thought there must be. And then I thought I best ask Andrew about this. So. A couple names come to mind. Obviously, no analogy here is going to be a perfect analogy. You can poke holes in any of them. But in terms of um, incredible talent, meteoric rise, but demons that may have undermined a potentially truly glorious career, more glorious even than whatever it wound up being, two names come to mind for me the quickest. Uh, Doc Gooden would be one. Oh, that's a great show. Uh, Former pitcher for the Mets and then the Yankees. Uh, incredible beginning to his career, rookie of the year, looked like he was going to take baseball by storm. And while still having a good career, for sure, uh, drugs, drug addiction just completely undermined whatever player he was going to become. To the point, JJ, I don't know if you ever heard him tell the story, but uh, the Mets won the World Series in 1986, and he missed the parade because he was basically in the midst of a drug binge. Uh, And the, the team couldn't find him. 
He uh, was in he was in some kind of crack house in Queens. Yeah, and watched it on TV. Oh, yeah, uh, and and I've had the chance to meet him actually a couple times, and he's such a sweet man. Um, and you feel bad speaking with him, just knowing that these are still demons. Unfortunately, that he battles to this day. Um, so that would be one. Another one, maybe not quite to that extent, uh, but my personal hero, uh, Alan Iverson, is one that I sometimes think of. Yeah. Um, the, there are stories about him that have almost become legendary of, you know, out till when 5 a.m., 6 a.m., and then playing in a playoff game and scoring, you know, 35 points uh, hungover. I mean, like, he's he just never was quite willing to fully detach himself, it seemed, from that lifestyle while still being able to maintain what wound up being a Hall of Fame career. He's in the Hall of Fame, and he's, he's a legend. Um, but the way his career almost, kind of fell off a cliff, like you look at Vince Carter, who's still playing. Him and Allen Iverson are almost the same age. That's but like Iverson's been out of the Iverson's been out of the league long enough where he's already in the Hall of Fame because he was never willing to really change uh, and change his way of life. And so you just wonder how many great years of him he sabotaged with some of that lifestyle. So those, those are, are two I would think of. Those are brilliant examples, and 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 also one key thing that they all have was that as young players, best. Iverson, who was the other one you mentioned? Uh, Doc Gooden. Doc Gooden. As early in their careers, they were transformative players in their sport. Yeah. They were just outstanding. Yeah, those are good examples. I'm glad I went to you on this. Oh, um, this one I'm going to take, <laughs> although I want your input because you have weird body syndrome. Mm. Um, Emmanuel Brion, you guys may have already discussed this in a previous pod, and I might have missed it. How old is too old to wear a football shirt in a public setting? For context, Emmanuel is 42. Can I, I have a question? Before you answer this, I want to ask a question. Yeah. There are, you know, we, we all speak English, but there are moments where the English language barrier between us rears its head. When he says football shirt, does he mean what I would refer to as a jersey or does he mean literally just a, like a t-shirt? Fip, football shirt, replica jersey. I don't, right, t-shirts are fine. I think I here's my view on it. I think wearing the old or the retro shirts is always timeless and is absolutely fine. Now there's a little something about a paunchy 40-year-old dude in the brand new shirt of a team that looks a little bit off and that's probably more to do with the modern shirts unforgiving fit, shall we say. But, <laughs> on, but honestly, I don't think you you should set an age limit on this. I think it's absolutely fine, but know that if you're going to wear like the really tight uh, Puma or the really tight, I suppose, Ar- Arsenal's jerseys under Puma were about as tight as they got. If you wear a shirt like that and you're not quite in shape and you're a little bit older, it looks a little bit different. I haven't bought a jersey in a long time. I don't know if there was a particular age where I came to that conclusion. I think part of it is I feel a little bit weird wearing jerseys of guys who are now way younger than me. I don't know why that's like a, a thing in my head that I just feel kind of weird about. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm all for like t-shirts, sweatshirts, but I, I haven't bought a Jersey in a long time uh, from any sport. I yeah. Know. No, I, I'm, I'm still a fairly regular buyer of jerseys, but now I like kind of more vintage. You're, you're, you're a child. You're, you're stuck in the uh, phase of arrested development. It's, it's sad to watch you putter around like this. I'm quite happy, and that's absolutely true. So uh, I guess I'm winning. Uh, Lucas Meyer, what are the odds that Zach Steffen goes back to City and is the nailed second-string player? Will he actually get time to play? Well, I have a bit of insight on this. 
So he was injured at uh, Fortuna Dusseldorf, has not played since December with the patella problem, and then along came the coronavirus. And I don't actually know where that trade stands. Was that trade ever officially confirmed? Because the report was Stefan was going back to City and Claudio Brava was going to NYCFC. So I, during NYCFC's uh, media day for the for MLS, I actually asked Sean Johnson, the NYCFC goalkeeper. Oh, my God. I asked him straight up about that report, and he wasn't phased or surprised, and he didn't look like he was fronting. He said, really, I hadn't heard about that at all. So I'm wondering if this was ever happening. Uh, I don't know. You, you, would have, you have more insight on that than I do. In terms of whether or not Stefan will actually play, let's say he does go to Man City, I mean, beyond like League Cups, um, it's hard for me to see it. Like Ederson is young in his own right. Ederson is 26 right now, and Stefan is 25. So like, yeah. Ed, Ed, when is Ederson's prime going to be over where Stefan would even get a chance? Like, I, I don't – other than injury to Ederson, I don't, I don't see it. And Stefan does not seem to be as comfortable with the ball at his feet as we've seen, although he's been put in precarious positions by the U.S. men's national team. Um, but he doesn't look as good with the ball at his feet, as, certainly as as Ederson does. So, who's, who's one of the best in the world when it comes to that? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, uh, Andre, um, this is an interesting question he sent today. What's your favorite goal you've ever seen scored in real time, either live or on TV? It could be your favorite because of the circumstance of the game in which the goal was scored or just because the goal was so impressive. I'd love to know your answer. Stay safe and healthy and keep the pods coming each week. Thank you, Andre. Can I give my answers first? Of course. And they're both against teams I supported. So I went with the impressive uh, impressive angle. He said they could be just because they're impressive. Yeah. I was there for Gareth Bale's goal oh, yeah. in the Champions League final in Kiev. I don't need to say anything more about that. Um I also was there for Georgie Hadji of Barcelona, Real Madrid, Galatasaray, USA 94 fame, uh, the Maradona of the Carpathians. He hit a free kick, Andrew, at Lansdowne Road in Dublin from 35 yards in a World Cup qualifier. That was just breathtaking. I will post that on the Twitter. But he just absolutely steps up 35 yards. I'm with my dad. My dad says, he's not going to try from here. Do you think he's going to try from here? And the next thing, he just rattles it. Into the roof of the net, thirty-five yards, unbelievable. Um, I also had the bale bicycle kick on my list here. Uh, I mean, look in terms of ones that you've seen on TV. Like my answer for this, he says circumstances matter. So the Landon Donovan goal is pretty much always going to be my answer to that question. I don't think I've ever felt that way after any other goal, other than actually, you know what, Lucas Morris' uh, winning goal against Ajax, I would put into the Donovan category. Um, you know, for me personally, again, like the Deli Alley versus Crystal Palace goal. Oh, I had the Bale bicycle kick. And I'll tell you another one. Let's bring it back to MLS for a sec. Uh, watching, I was not there, but watching Zlatan's first game for the Galaxy against LAFC, he comes on and scores from nearly midfield. It's like, is this real? Is yeah. this like an actual thing or is this like a movie that we're watching? It was, it was, and then the way that game ended with him scoring uh, the winner, it was just surreal watching that performance. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I got to say, uh, watching Zlatan for in, in, in that game, 
he looked like tired and uninterested uninterested on the sideline. And then he comes into the game and blasts a volley, like you said, from almost halfway. Incredible. Finally, Andrew, uh, Paul Burkett sent us two questions, but I'm only going to answer one. So he just started watching the original FIFA films for the World Cups, uh, 1954 to 2018. And they, they are actually really funny for just some of the little cultural references from the era that they were made in. like I, the actually, mu- uh, I actually own that DVD box set, except mine I bought a while ago, so it goes up through 2006, I believe. Right, well, because the, the 1986 one is really, really kind of uh, funny because the music is so from the 80s. Um, but uh, yeah, so he has a couple of questions here. Uh, two issues jumped out at him. I'm going to deal with the first one. Why was goal, goalkeeping so largely, but not quite uniformly, atrocious until somewhere in the, in the 1990-94 time frame. Way too many punches and perhaps, not, not coincidentally, innumerable soft goals and bad rebounds. Maybe it was because many of them were wearing Tams for some reason, which is a, a hat. Yeah, uh, look, it's, it's for the same reasons that defending in the past often looked brutally bad. Technique in goalkeeping, as in outfield players, has moved on immeasurably from then. The game has moved on, and not only that, like... Certain technology issues like the weight of the ball when wet, the field, the boots, everything has moved on. Look at the change in goalkeeping since the back pass rule was abolished. Innovation, technique and coaching have all evolved in goalkeeping. And to say it was atrocious up until 1990, is that's crazy to me. In that time period, you had Neville Southall, Pat Jennings, Gordon Banks. Brilliant goalkeepers. Not to remember back in the day, Lev Lashin. Uh, Things get better in, in areas of sport over time. It's just evolution. And by the way, just on that point, before we finish, um, I've been watching back old games, Andrew, that I thought were amazing at the time. And a lot of them don't hold up now because of just how fast the game is right now compared to how slow it was back then. So, you know, time moves on, uh, fitness, technology. It's evolution, baby. Yeah, this is true of a lot of sports. Not just soccer. Like you go back and watch some like football games from the sixties, and you're like, "Is this even the same sport that I'm, that I'm watching now?" Yeah, yeah. Ab- absolutely. And you've got to factor in those um, when you're when you're uh, you know don't criticize the old games. Enjoy them for what they were. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Let's do this now. <laughs> red card. And no, no, no. We're not doing this. Oh, red now. We're on. doing this now. We're doing this. And it's a very quick Belarusian Football League update. The Belarusian Football League update is brought to you by JJ. Uh, Bati Barsov drew with Torpedo on Saturday, while Slutsk had their first defeat of the season. Slutsk remained top with Vitebsk and Torpedo in a congested table. They're all joint top. Game of the weekend is on Saturday, Andrew, 10 o'clock. Bate, they take a trip to fourth place, Gorodiea. Mm. Now it's red. Red now it's hard. Red card. I'm going to go first here, if you don't mind. This is kind of my wait, what story of the week. Um, and it's not so much a direct red card. It's simply a story that makes me very uncomfortable. And you've known me for quite some time. You would say that I, I'm typically, you've known me typically to be somebody who doesn't love confrontation, even though there's probably people who listen to this podcast that would disagree. But like in in life, I'm you, somebody. You, who, have a, you have a temper, but you are never, ever aggressive mano a mano and you rarely rarely like get angry with someone in a in a confrontational setting and just like uncomfortable situations make me like exponentially more uncomfortable just watching them so you can only imagine jj how i felt after reading this headline 
Tottenham approached Mauricio Pochettino over potential coronavirus pay cut. Boy, how did that phone call go? Now, here's what I'm going to say. I, I wrote all of this and, and formulated this opinion before even reading anything else about this on the internet. And I did see that uh, Tony Cascarino has the same opinion of what I'm about to say. So it took a little bit of the wind out of my sails. I thought I was coming up with a, a very original idea. What, uh, what, what, what's wrong with agreeing with Tony Gold? So anyway... That's what they called him in France, Tony Gold. Um, now, you obviously may remember that Pochettino, who has been asked to take this pay cut, was fired, along with all of his assistants, by the club last November. Um, as is the case when one is fired, you still collect your money. Pochettino's do what I read, uh, 8.5 million pounds. Um, Tottenham, of course, are in talks with their players and current staff over pay cuts, Um and now, as we know, they are also in contact with former staff. So let me just get this straight. Like, if you're Pochettino, you get this call, you fired me, and now you're asking me to do a huge favor for you. I want to know how it was decided who had to make that phone call. Like, please tell me it was Levy. This could not have been some intern that they, like, threw this at because they were all too afraid to have to make that call. If you're Poch, what's the move here? Because, like, it's kind of putting him, like, every part of, every fiber of his being is going to want to say, you know, shove it. But, like, he'll also potentially look bad in this moment if he's refusing to take a pay cut on that kind of money when a lot of people out there are struggling. So, uh, and this is the Tony Cascarino bit, there is a way for Mauricio Pochettino to have his cake and eat it too. You tell Tottenham to shove it, and then you take the full eight and a half million. And you donate a million, two million, three, four, however much million to the coronavirus relief effort. So you still collect your money and you still come out looking good in this situation. What a what a thing to do. The the st the stones on Daniel Levy to ask the guy that he fired to take a pay cut right now. Oof. Can you imagine that phone call? It's going to go to one or two ways. The first way it's going to go, hello, Maurizio, it's uh, Daniel Levy here. Um, Maurizio, could you take a pay cut? No, I, I won't take a pay cut. You fired me. Oh, okay. Um, is it possible you could uh, mow my lawn <laughs> tomorrow on my estate in Hertfordshire? <laughs> Boop! Oh, the, like, I just, I wish, I do hope that the recording of that phone call comes out one day. And I don't even know, maybe Pochettino received it well. I don't, I haven't even read anything yet about it, about how he's, what he's going to do. But just the thought of being the guy as the phone is ringing, just like what he was thinking, I'm going to have to do this now. Oof. Yikes. What do you have? Uh, my red card is following on from something last week that was kind of breaking and we didn't really deal with it. So last week we had briefly discussed the dissolution of the U.S. Soccer Development Academy. And uh, Jeff Carlisle then tweeted MLS has made its move with a statement from MLS. Major League Soccer today announced it will launch a new elite youth competition platform, which will provide year round high level matches for MLS club academy teams and non-MLS Academy teams that previously participated in the U.S. Soccer Development Academy. The new platform will provide elite competition against domestic and international teams, and MLS is evaluating expanding participation to include clubs beyond the former Development Academy. Major League Soccer is deeply committed to developing world-class players through an elite competitive pathway, from our academy teams through the professional game. 
said Todd Derma, Durbin, MLS Executive Vice President and Competition and Player Relations. As we look ahead to the 2026 FIFA World Cup here in the US, Canada and Mexico, now more than ever, it is incumbent on us to establish a competition that sets a new standard for elite youth play and allows athletes to develop their full potential. The new platform will include league season matches and both regional and national tournaments with international teams. Uh, now, the Athletic preempted this development with some great reporting from Paul Tenorino and, Stam, and Sam Steskill. Uh, the broad strokes of that piece from April 14th are that MLS um, development academies had complained that the standard of competition was not high enough in the pre-existing development academy league. In February, representatives of U.S. soccer tried to emphasize to MLSDAs how important they were to the Boys Development Academy. This was clearly to no avail. Uh, now the DA is disbanded. Uh, we're not sure, although the MLS statement says that it will look to include non-MLS uh, Development Academies in this new system. We're not sure how that will work. But just the overall look of this, Andrew, um, MLS has forged ahead with its youth plans and US soccer, which is the governing body of the game, did not come out with a statement, did not come out with a plan for to replace the previous development academy. And that just doesn't sit right to me. MLS have gone ahead with this. They obviously clearly had thought this through. They'd obviously clearly told U.S. Uh, Soccer Federation that they were going ahead with this. And it's as if U.S. Soccer had to react to the MLS plan. Um, U.S. Soccer statement on the dissolution of the development academy stated that it was financial reasons derived from the pandemic that had forced the shutdown of the program. But really, it seems as if behind the scenes, MLS had been preparing for life without them. It just, I don't know, it doesn't sit right with me. It, it doesn't look great considering the guardians of the game are supposed to be the U.S. Soccer Federation. Um, and as much as MLS say that they want to include non-MLS academies in this new dispensation, I mean, really, they're going to look after their own, I'm pretty sure. Ah, I'm not sure about all of this, Andrew. It's more of an update rather than a red card. All right. Uh, man of the match. The Ready for mine? Uh, I guess so. Uh, JJ, I went with the Stay and Play Cup. Made me very nostalgic watching some of this. Uh, EA huh. Sports ran a FIFA 20 tournament comprised of 20 different players from European clubs playing as their teams. Uh, some of the notable names. They had some pretty big names in this. Trent Alexander-Arnold. Um Vinicius, Azpilicueta, Jao Felix, Ashraf Hakimi, Serginio Dest of Ajax, who got absolutely rocked in the round of 16. In the end, though, it was Mohamed Darami from FC Copenhagen who beat uh, Jesper Karlström of Swedish side Drew Gardens 2-1 on a golden goal. I saw the goal. It was very dramatic. Darami went wild. It was a beautiful scene. By the way, these guys had to be pretty legit to play as like a Danish team and a Swedish team and get to the final when you've got Vinicius... At, you know, playing as Real Madrid and Trent playing as Liverpool. Like, good for them. Um, the tournament was run by EA Sports. They donated a million dollars to the Global Givings Coronavirus Relief Fund. Um, I'll tell you this. I was watching some of it, and all I can say is, my God, do I miss playing that video game. I yeah. keep telling myself that, like, I'm going to get back into it again. Like, remember, we used to do, like, on this podcast, we used to talk about like when FIFA was coming out and we would go through like rankings of like what different players were graded and things like that. I just, I miss it. I want to keep, I want to play FIFA again. I just like, I just don't have time. 
Uh, yeah, it's a time issue for me. And I know if I start playing it that I w- other things will suffer in my life because you said I am a, a big man child. Yeah. Um, I think what I'm going to... Honestly, with the whole stay at home, play at home, whatever thing, I, I can't watch people playing because I want to play myself. I can't do it. Yeah, I, yeah. Didn't, I didn't think I could either. And then, like, I've kind of been watching, like, I was watching a little bit of the NBA 2K stuff. Uh, yeah. I was watching a little bit of the Stay and Play Cup. Um, I haven't seen much of the MLB, the show. I haven't really watched much of that. But I've seen some clips on Twitter that seem kind of cool. Like, I think, yeah, you know what? I'll watch a little of this. I'm about to download Championship Manager 0102. Oh. I'm about to pick a team for caught offside. So if people want to suggest teams that I take from the lower leagues right to the Premier League and we can update each week, let's do it. But I might put that out on Twitter to everybody. Um, so, Andrew, my man of the match comes from our very own city in New York. A combination of supporters, uh, supporters clubs rather, of European teams in the city, including Leicester City, Roma, Eintracht Frankfurt, AC Milan, St. Pauli, River Plate, Fiorentina, to name a few, and organized by a man called Giovanni Bartocci, has raised $38,338 for NYC Health and Hospitals. That's the largest public health care system in the nation, serving more than 1 million New Yorkers annual, annually in more than 70, and more than 70 patient care locations across the five boroughs. Their mission is to care for all, regardless of ability to pay or immigration status. You can find the GoFundMe link over on Twitter, at New York Foxes have it, uh, the Leicester City Supporters Club. They have it all over their uh, timeline. What an incredible gesture. I mean, 38,000 in a matter of weeks from just ordinary people. Oh, and a total grassroots movement. That's, that's great, man. That's Completely. Great. Set up on Twitter. Um, incredible gesture. And we both made a contribution, which, of course, led to a curb-style dilemma for me because the option is there to be anonymous. <laughs> But I needed people to know that I contributed. You know, that's okay, though. Like, you don't need to be... I almost feel like it's it's wrong to even put Anonymous there. Although, you maybe, maybe... You know what? Anonymous, though, could make sense for somebody who's super wealthy that isn't donating very much. Because it, cause then it looks bad. So, you know what? Okay. Although, maybe that's all the more reason to not have Anonymous there. Because you're kind of then, like, quietly pressuring people to give more. Someone tweeted this two weeks ago. Neymar made an incredible gesture um, of money to aid uh, the coronavirus battle. And the Daily Mail put up anonymous donor revealed to be Neymar. And all I could think of was Larry David. Neymar is now Larry David. By the way, before we get out, Andrew, JJ's unpopular opinion poll results. We have them in for this week's unpopular opinion poll result. This week's JJ's unpopular opinion was the MLS shootout, the 35-yard run-up versus the keeper. JJ says it was a pretty good idea. You had three options in the poll. Good idea, bad idea, or I like regular pens. Well, the good idea swayed and held the day. 57.5% of people liked the idea. 146 did not like the idea. And a whopping 28% said they like I. That, said that they like regular penalty oh, kicks. So, wait a minute. Now, we, what you did here was so slimy, so weaselly, so underhanded. Like The, th- the fact that you thought you were going to get away with this. So you're going to sit here right now and with a straight face claim that you won the poll. You took the same thing and split it into two options to split the vote. 
saying it's a bad idea and saying I like regular penalties is the same thing. They're all anti your bad opinion. Like, how dare you think that you won this? You won the day with fifty-seven percent of the vote. Stop that. The other two things are both anti. Andrew, Andrew, I didn't set up the system. The founding father set up. The founding father set up the system, and I took the popular vote, and I took the electoral college. Fifty-seven point five percent of people agree with me. I'm sorry. I saw that. I saw the poll, and I just looked at it for like five minutes, and I was like, wait. What am I missing here that he's put like the same option twice on there? He's trying to pad his own results. He, there's no level that you won't sink to to try to shine a light on your supposed genius. Andrew, you'll have to wait until next week for a further installment of Unpopular. No, no, I'm good. My next one is flaming hot. No poll. No poll is going to do this justice. I look and, forward to it. And also the time machine will return next week too. Oh, really? Yeah, we don't know where we're going yet. Oh. Oh, okay. <laughs> you, uh, you, you just love to, to crap on everything I do. I haven't said a word, and I've been an incredible, such a good sport with driving that time machine all around the world. You've, it, been, it, you've been a good sport with a lot of my uh, flights of fancy, <laughs> including keeping everyone up to date with a league that no one can even watch. Yeah. Well, hey, this was fun, man. I enjoy these every single week. Uh, our thanks to Kristen Hennage. That was that was really interesting stuff on this Newcastle takeover. We'll continue, obviously, to watch that, monitor that, and kind of continue to get the pulse on how Newcastle fans are feeling about that. Because it, it, it really is, not to go back off on a tangent as we're ending the show here, but, like, they in particular are an interesting test case with me just because, like, I don't know, there's something about Newcastle that just feels, uh, they feel so, like, indigenous to what, English football is and like that club just feels so like kind of old school to me and I don't know the thought of this new money coming in it's just like a weird it's just like I don't know it doesn't doesn't jive in my head I mean, it's the um, same it's the same as man's as what happened at Man City yeah. it took me years to accept it that that huge money warps and distorts football and uh, we uh, we're at a we're crossing the Rubicon now with Newcastle get ball yeah but hey this was good stuff man to you I say Check you later, fun boy. See ya. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast.